Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. All right, if you have your Bible open to the book of Acts. This morning we're going to look at verses 6, 7, and 8, a little more in depth than we did last week. This is one of the subjects when I read scripture, especially verse eight, where I wonder, why am I a pastor? Why am I a preacher? Why did Jesus put this verse in the scripture? Being an introvert, you probably don't believe me, but if you just, if you didn't know me and you walked in a room like this full of people, I would be tucked away somewhere by myself. Uh, God has helped me overcome that, uh, especially being a pastor, um, but uh, that's one of those things that I just don't naturally come out of my shell and be bubbly with everybody I meet. Um, you'll get to know that over time. You'll think you'll see me walk through and just see a look on my face, and you're like, wow, he must be mad or something. Like, no, I'm really not. I'm thinking. I'm contemplating. I, I, I like to just sit in my thoughts and and dwell for a while. Don't come in there. It can be a bad, scary place. But um, anyway, but this is one of those things where I'm challenged to come out of my shell because I am called to be a witness. You are called to be a witness. The task that we have before us is, is great. It is a high calling to be a witness. If you read verse 8 and you just think, well, that's for the pastor, that's for the the, the associate pastor, that's for the youth pastor, that's for, for vacation Bible schools, for children's ministry. Like, you, you misread verse 8. Jesus wasn't exclusive and didn't create an exclusive class of servant in the church when he spoke these words of truth to the disciples and still to us today. The title this morning, A Task Unfinished, comes from a hymn that was written back in the 1930s, I believe. Don't quote me, something tells me 1934. Uh, I'm not that old, but um, the, the husband and wife team of Keith and Kristen Getty recorded this song uh, back in 2016. That's the first time I heard it, um, and it's just entitled, Facing a Task Unfinished. And I want to read a couple of the verses to you in light of our text this morning. The first verse says, facing a task unfinished. Thank the Lord I'm not singing it to you. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Let me skip down to um, the final verse. The other verses talk about those who've gone before us, carrying the torch, the flame of the gospel. 
O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Forth on thine errands send us to labor for thy sake. The last verse always hits me. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Two excuses that I am guilty of in my own life. But God did not give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of love, discipline, and self-control. God has not given us a task like I give my children sometimes. It's too difficult. One, because they don't know what they're doing, or two, they just physically lack the strength and how to accomplish or in order to accomplish the task. I can remember as a kid at times uh, getting a chore to do by my dad, and, and I wasn't able to, to finish it because, again, I didn't know or I just didn't have the, the physical strength to accomplish it. I, I can also remember getting a list of chores from mother. They'll be here next week, I think. Uh, and so I got to speak kindly of her today, but she, uh, I would always speak nice of my mother. You'll see the good things come from mom. The other questionable things come from dad. Uh, but she would give me a list of chores to do. And uh, I was to do those chores by the time she got home from lunch. And so I would wait, calculate, how much time will it take me to get caught obeying? <laughs> sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, but I, I like to get caught doing the list. Uh, and I needed to be on the last chore um, so she would know that I'd been working hard and maybe worked up a little sweat, you know. Um, God has given us a task, and we want to be caught being obedient. We want to be active in this task that he's given us. So I, let, me, let me read from verse 6 through 8 of Acts chapter 1, if you would stand with me, uh, and then we will pray and proceed uh, into the text. Luke writes in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, this is indeed a high calling. It's a serious calling with eternal significance. It is a calling that seems so simple, yet it is the one perhaps that we disobey the most. Forgive us, Lord, forgive us and set our hearts right this morning to receive what your word has for us today. May our ears be attentive. And though the challenge and the task is great, may we leave resolved to go and let them see Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you, church. You may be seated. We start in verse 6. Remember where we left off. When they had come together, they asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? We, we need to grasp that kingdom concept because it helps us understand our task and our mission today. There is a deep misunderstanding of the kingdom by the disciples in this moment. We're not going to hold that against them. We're not going to beat them up for that. Everything had radically changed for them. In the span of three years, their lives were totally different. But this question brings to mind that they're looking for a political kingdom. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. In fact, this week on Facebook, I saw a hat that I was almost considered ordering now that I'm a Texan again, and it said, make Texas a nation again. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's probably not what I should be wearing yet. All right, let's, let's not. But we do the same thing. We always want political power, political kingdoms. But the disciples had a misunderstanding about the kingdom Jesus was talking about, what they were expecting him to set up. I mean, the Old Testament, the Old Testament links the spirit with the coming kingdom. And so now that Jesus had been talking about the spirit coming as, as the, the gospels capture and, and talking about the kingdom, that's what he was preaching, all of these things together, they're, they're, they're thinking it's time for Jesus to restore this kingdom. But Jesus offers this correction and it helps us with this as well. As Jesus had taught them about the kingdom of God, he, said, he had said at one point in Luke chapter 17, he said, guys, the, the kingdom is in your midst. He was talking about himself. It's not here or there's the kingdom, here's the kingdom. It's the kingdom is in your midst. But here's what the disciples are thinking. One, they're thinking a political kingdom. Notice you'll see in verse 6 it says, is it, is it now? Is now the time you're restoring the kingdom? That word restore, that word restoration. They're, they're looking for a restoration of something they've already known, something that's already been in place. That's what you're doing. You're restoring. You're not making it new. You're putting something back that was Something like the, the king of da like King David's kingdom. The, the, the time of Solomon where, where Israel grew way beyond her borders. One of Israel's problems was nostalgia, always looking back to what was. It gets warm fuzzies sometimes. When Israel was was wandering through the desert coming out of Egypt, God taking them to the promised land, this was not the time to look back because they were enslaved in Egypt. Yes, they had shelter, they had food, but they were also uh, enslaved to a brutal tyrant and taskmaster. They were not free but they wanted to always go back to Egypt. Even though God was leading them forward, if we only look backwards, it's not going to help you move forward in kingdom life. God calls us 
as witnesses to testify about where and how he is taking us forward on this journey to look more like Christ. He is at work actively in us. And so we long for the kingdom of of the Son of God. We long for his kingdom. And it's, it's not a kingdom that we've ever seen before. But this is what the disciples were thinking. Something that once was needed to be restored. And what Jesus is doing is creating something completely different. They're also looking for an ethnic restriction. Look, at, look again at, uh, at verse 6. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, belonged to the Jews. David was a Jew. Solomon was a Jew. It was an ethnic kingdom, the kingdom of the Jews. Jews typically despise the Gentile people, though. That's a problem when you get to verse 8. It's a problem with the Great Commission. Jews despise the Gentile people. Now, the Gentiles were free to join the Jews, but it wasn't to, become, uh, to stay Gentile. They were to become a Jew. They were joining a Jewish kingdom. So there's that ethnic restriction. And then there's a, a geographic restriction. The kingdom of, uh, of Israel is going to be in Jerusalem. Is there any other place? Kind of like asking a Texan, what's the greatest state in the union? Is there, really under, is there another state in the union? I don't know. It's not really any kind of question. I mean, we all know the answer. It's a geographic restriction. Are you, going to re, are you going to restore it to Israel? But Jesus never said, well, guys, you're wrong. There's not going to be a kingdom. There is a kingdom, and it's in your midst. What he's saying is, guys, the times, the dates that you're concerned about, the restoration of the kingdom, all of these things, they are all under the Father's sovereign authority. God has these dates. He has his times. But I've got something more important. I've got something bigger. It's a much bigger task. In between the time that I leave and the time that I come back, you've got a task before you. And it is to make the name of Jesus known to the nations. If that would dishearten you at all, to, to just like, why couldn't Jesus have just given us some insight? Why couldn't he have just said, okay, it's going to be on this date? Why couldn't he? What, uh, why? Why? I settle in finding hope, and it strengthens my faith to know that our God is sovereign over this. I find peace knowing that when he spoke everything into being at the same moment, he had an end point in time when his son is coming back, when Jesus will come and claim what is rightfully his. I find peace in that. I find a great hope fulfilled in knowing that our God is not going to disappoint, that our God is faithful, that our God is going to fulfill all of his promises, and that Jesus is one of those promises that he will come back. In fact, verse 11 reminds us, he will come back just the way you saw him go. So let's think a little further then into the kingdom life. What is kingdom life? What, what is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus talking about? So we go to the Gospels. If you read through the four Gospels, you'll, you'll hear Jesus teaching parables, talking. You'll hear John the Baptist proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did John mean? What did Jesus mean? 
What about these parables that, that Jesus taught? I, I, I just quickly jotted down the three that stuck out in my mind the most of, of many of them. The first one that came to mind about uh, kingdom living was the, the parable of the talents. The master is leaving. He's getting ready to go away. He leaves uh, three, uh, uh, three of his servants with different amounts of, of talents. One receives five, one receives three, one receives uh, two, excuse me, the other receives one. You'll remember the story. The master returns. The one who, was, who had received five and two, they were faithful. They, they doubled the master's investment in them, and, and they put it to work, all the gifts that they had been given, all the abilities, the, uh, the, the, whatever else we might call it. They put it to work and returned the investment to the master. But then you've got the lazy one who didn't do anything, lethargy slothfulness. He didn't do anything. Why? Because he was afraid of his master. I knew you to be a harsh man. You didn't really know your master at all. You think you did, but you didn't. So the two that worked go into the the master's presence and into his joy and receive their reward. Then there's the parable of the ten minas. It's a little bit different, similar to the parable of the talents, but, but just a little bit different in how uh, Jesus gives the elements. But the, the concept is the same, investing what God has given to you for kingdom life, for his glory. And then I'm reminded of the, the parable of the sower and the seed. The sower goes along and he sows the seeds. The seed falls on four different types of soils. Some the seed falls, it chokes its life out. Some can't even get life at all. It can't get a grip. The seed can't, can't do anything because the ground is so hard and rocky. Then you got the one that's choked out by the weeds. Then you've got one of the four that's fertile and ready to receive the seed and grows and produces fruit. This is what kingdom life is like. The kingdom of God with the church. So let's try to define the kingdom of God. In simplest form, a kingdom is anywhere, any territory over which a king reigns. So we understand that with God being the creator of the universe, creator of all things, then the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. The kingdom of God is then everywhere because God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. But the New Testament, John the baptizer and Jesus preached the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is a, a, a change in tone, a, t- a change in language a little bit, that Jesus would, re- would preach this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's in your presence. And the heart of what Jesus was getting at was this messianic kingdom, that this kingdom that ruled by God's Messiah. He is, after all, king of kings and lord of lords. So he's got a kingdom to, to rule over and to reign. And for us as believers and followers of Christ, that means he is our king and we are in the kingdom of God. This is how we proclaim the, that the kingdom of God is in it. This is how he would proclaim. It's not just a future thing, but it is something that is here and now. And we see it in the church. Even though our king is seated at the right hand of God, someday he is going to return. He said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority is given to me. Not to me, but to Jesus. Jesus is saying that. I'm quoting him. All authority is given to Jesus in that moment. Does that mean that something has been left out? Some some level of authority God didn't give his son? No, all authority. All authority is given to Jesus. So that means he is king of kings and lord of lords. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 
He is giving his disciples their kingdom assignment, their kingdom mission. And you and I join them on that same mission because the kingdom of God trumps everything else. That's tough for us to hear as Americans. But the kingdom of God trumps everything else in our life. What is the kingdom mission? Well, let's think about the mission itself. The core of the mission is found in verse 8. He says, you will be my witness. We are to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. That calling, that phrase is found at least 39 times in the book of Acts. Get used to hearing it. We are called to be witnesses. The 12, including Paul, they're the nucleus of that launch. Luke would describe the apostles as leaders all throughout the book of Acts, God using them. And all the while, the the leaders of, of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, seem powerless, even though they were in some kind of position of authority. But the apostles will be the witness. But then the next generation comes. Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, others that come along. But these, right here in chapter 1, these men all witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. They had breakfast with him. And so they are the authoritative teachers of the Scripture And God will use them as they expound and explain the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus, Peter's preaching. We are all witnesses of this. The next chapter, verse 15, we are witnesses of this in reference to seeing him raised from the dead. Chapter 10, verse 39 We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Acts chapter 22, verse 15. Since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. This word for witness. That's where we find our word martyr. But it simply means one who provides a personal testimony. One who provides a witness. Friend, if Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation and you have asked him for the forgiveness of your sins and each and every day you choose Jesus Christ, you trust him today, if you were to draw your final breath, you have a witness of a life being restored by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your witness. You didn't see Jesus raised from the dead. I know that. But that's, even though that's what these guys are, are proclaiming, they saw we believe their witness. Because we believe their witness, because we believe the scripture, because we believe the text, because we've, uh, we've uh, been, been called by God to trust in Christ, then you have a same witness. Your witness is that the power of God changed my life when I trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. He gave me new life. That's the witness that we carry to this day. Isaiah had a day in mind all the way back in Isaiah chapter 43. He, he saw a day. God let him see a day. When, and, and Isaiah would capture this moment. He says this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 and following. He says, you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. 
No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I alone declared and saved and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. Also from today on, I am he alone, and none can rescue from my power. I act, and who can reverse it? That was written centuries before Acts chapter 1. Yet it's fulfilled in Christ, Jesus in the flesh, calling his disciples to be witnesses to the world. That message is fairly simple. We preachers like to get it uh, high and mighty sounding, but really it's very simple, the message we proclaim. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He died as a substitute to pay for our sins. God raised him from the dead, and now he is exalted in heaven. And he's coming back. And he calls you today to believe in him and receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is the good news that we carry. It's a simple message. It's a simple message. That is the gospel. Though the message is simple, the task is great. The task is great. The task, which is to be a witness, an effective witness, requires you to come off the bench and get in the game. It requires me to not be okay just being a water boy, but to be in the game. It requires us to lace up our shoes and say, put me in coach, I'm ready to play. Following Christ means you're in the game and you're in it to win it. Don't need any Monday morning quarterbacks in the church anymore. Monday morning quarterbacks, they love to play the game, you should have done it this way. If I would have done it, I would have said it this way. Ain't, got, ain't nobody got time for that. Not anymore. Hindsight's 2020. that's great, but you're always looking backwards, you don't see the wall you're about to hit in front of you because you're always looking back. Christ compels us forward with expectation. He compels us forward with hope. He compels us in the mission of God, and he's always moving his people, his church, forward. The message is simple. The task is great. The task is demanding, and it's one that we cannot facilitate on our own. We must rely on that which God has provided for. That is the power to fulfill the mission. What is the mission's power? Well, simply put in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. So there are about 10 days between the time that verse 8, uh, uh, 9, 10, 11, where Jesus returns and when the Holy Spirit comes. About 10 days. We're going to look at that next week about how to wait well. But here in this time of waiting and, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit certainly shows up and displays the power of God in these simple men, uneducated but used of God. The letters of Paul are filled with churches that are impacted by the Spirit of God. That when he arrived, the most unlikely people became real life examples of God's power. It is his power to give. It is his power to give, and it is always available. He will display it when he wants to display it. 
And that power given by God is life-changing, and it flows through the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Life changes when the Holy Spirit comes, when, when God uses that gospel to regenerate a, a heart of a man or the, the heart of a woman who is lost and fallen in sin, bringing them to repentance and salvation, seeking righteousness to live for Christ in Christ alone. Here in our text, specifically the powers related to the disciples being a witness for Christ. And that is what they will do. Well, what about the extent of the mission? How far is the mission to go? How far is this message to go? Does it stop at the Rockport Fulton city limits? You know that already because you drilled me on it a couple of months ago or about a month ago when we came in view of a call. You were, this was very important to you, I remember. It doesn't end at the causeway. It doesn't stop at Lamar. It doesn't stop down in Corpus or going over the Harbor Bridge. It, it, it doesn't stop in Brownsville. It doesn't stop in Laredo. It doesn't stop in El Paso or Amarillo or Dallas or Texarkana or Beaumont. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in New York City. It doesn't stop in LA. It doesn't stop in Chicago. It doesn't stop in Seattle, Tacoma. It doesn't stop in Miami. Maybe I should include Honolulu because they're really way out there. It don't stop there. It doesn't stop. This mission knows no national boundary. It goes forever to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I found myself struggling a bit. How do you get people excited about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? I'm having a hard time. I've heard of it so much in my life. You heard one sermon, you heard them all about this, but if you think back just for a moment where these disciples were and what Jesus was calling them to do, what was Jerusalem to them? Yeah, it was home, but they had just experienced the Passion Week where Christ was arrested, beaten, crucified. It's not a friendly place for them. They've been in hiding while Jesus was in the grave. They were hiding, didn't want to be found out right? It's a rough place for them. Judea, let's spread that out a little bit. What about Judea? Well, they were rejected there as they were out teaching and going through the countryside. Samaria, whoa, you want me to go minister amongst the half-breed of people, mixed race? Say it ain't so. Yes, it's so. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? You mean you want me to go deal, not even just with the half-breeds, but you want me to go deal with the Gentiles? Those unclean heathens? Those sinners? Yes, to the ends of the earth. When we think about how the disciples would have heard that, it changes the impact. At least it did for me. Because it stretched these guys Socially, it stretched them culturally, definitely ethnically. But the gospel goes beyond our skin tone. It goes beyond our language. It goes beyond national borders because in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. 
And Christ is for all. He is for every person that walks this earth. They need to hear the gospel. And it is the church's job that we take that gospel to the ends of the earth. All the world needs to hear the gospel until the task is finished. And the task is left unfinished. The task is unfinished. So I pray that we would strive together to finish this high calling that we have in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a burden. And while we think about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, let us also remember we are called to take it to the end of the street. Here's how God has planned for mission success for you, for me, for Coastal Oaks. One, we acknowledge that he's called us to witness. Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to Jesus. So as we go, we make disciples, teaching, baptizing, all of those, while living and doing so in the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now, he said that to the disciples, but I still think that applies to us today. As he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witness. Just testify about what Jesus has done in your life. You don't have to write a theological book about all that God has done for you. You just need to tell somebody the gospel. That's all they need. Just tell them the gospel. He calls us to witness. Not only does he call us to witness, but he empowers you to witness. He gives you that. That's where we've been talking about here in verse 8. He gives you the power to witness. You will receive power, and we will see in the coming weeks they definitely received that power. But I don't know the words to say. Well, if you lack wisdom, the Bible instructs you to pray for it. So we pray for it because he gives us wisdom. In Luke chapter 12, verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the reason you're not witnessing is because you're not depending on the Holy Spirit for that wisdom and that power. And then boldness. He makes you bold. I can't wait to get into the stories of the, the rest of the book of Acts because there are some wild ones in here where only God could act, like Acts chapter 4, verse 31, right? I love what is happening early on in the book of Acts. But listen, he says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. They were already experiencing persecution and imprisonment. Some wild things are happening, but they were bold. God did not give us a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity. He gave us a spirit of love and discipline, self-control. These are important things that we understand that God gives us, which is boldness, courage to speak the truth in the face of fire. And then we also understand that the Holy Spirit prays for us. We dare not ever go out and share the gospel without first praying and then remembering that while we're active and while we're serving and living, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, it tells us that he actively prays for us. He intercedes for us. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And then as we pray, we pray that he would give us a burning desire to see people saved. To see the lost saved. Friend, he calls you and me, to be a kingdom agent. To be a kingdom agent. To lay down the pursuits of this life 
and to pursue his, this high calling, to lay down the pursuits of, uh, of all that ensnare us and entrap us and to pursue this high calling. And June 6th, 1944, you'll recognize that date, many of you, as D-Day. Nearly 160,000 Allied soldiers landed on the beaches of Normandy. Some 24,000 paratroopers landed behind enemy lines. It was a plan that took months to work out all the details. So many things had to be just right in order for this Great plan to, to, to be successful. But many historians will call D-Day the beginning of the end of World War II. Even though for almost a full year, the war would continue on. The Allies would fight together through France and make it into to Germany. And if you remember history, you'll remember the importance of the Battle of the Bulge across the Rhine into Berlin. Finally, on May 7, 1945, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the day that marked the end. So when you think about it, it helps us understand kingdom life just a bit. D-Day, the beginning of the end of the war, was inaugurated. VE Day was the end of the war where that end was consummated. And that illustrates for us this kingdom life. This is where we are in between. When Christ came, God in the flesh dwelt among us. We love to celebrate that at Christmas, right? The kingdom inaugurated. When Christ returns, the bride for the bridegroom, the king for his kingdom, it'll be consummated. He won that decisive victory over death. He won that decisive victory over sin and over the grave. And still today, the church marches on. The battle is not over, but we're getting close. Victory is close at hand because Christ is coming back. We have work to do, church. We have work to do. And until that glorious day when he comes, we are called to call men and women, boys and girls, to repentance. We are called to share the gospel, to plant the seeds of gospel, just like this week in Vacation Bible School. We are called to remain faithful to that, not just once a week, but every day. Be faithful. Be faithful. God has given you a great task. He's given us as a church a great task. Let us be found faithful when he returns.